what is the knowledge requirement under the False Claims Act? Is it objective knowledge required, or can subjective knowledge based upon the facts and circumstances be used when determining whether a False Claims Act violation has occurred? Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Well, today we're going to step into the murky world of the False Claims Act. And really, we're going to be focusing on whether or not subjective facts and circumstances can be used when determining whether a False Claims Act violation has occurred or whether or not only objective facts and circumstances can be used. So let's go back to what is the False Claims Act. And uh, you know, first off, let's talk about the, the origin of the False Claims Act. Actually, the False Claims Act originated during the Civil War. And there were companies out there that were selling what was supposed to be gunpowder, but was actually sawdust. And so the False Claims Act came about you know, attacking those companies that sold the sawdust as opposed to uh, uh, gunpowder. The False Claims Act... Uh, originated uh, against those companies because they intentionally and with knowledge sold a, a false product to the government. And so the False Claims Act originated, and the, and the, the penalties under the False Claims Act are, are huge. Uh, it's um, treble damages, uh, so those are the whatever was paid, you know, times three, plus for 2023, penalties of up to $27,018 per claim. So it's not only the claims submitted times three, plus an additional 27000 or up to $27,018 per claim submitted. So I, I've said before on Stark Integrity that the damages can be huge, especially if you're a laboratory and you're billing like a $2 lab test. And so it's times three, so that's $6.00 plus the $27,018 per claim submitted. And if there were you know, thousands of claims submitted, then the fines and penalties under the uh, False Claims Act uh, can be significant and substantial. So again, with the basics of the False Claims Act, uh, the False Claims Act is violated if an entity or individual uh, bills the government and they know that the claim that they have submitted to the government is they have actual knowledge that it's false or – and this is what th this podcast episode is going to focus on – whether or not they, there was reckless disregard or deliberate ignorance for the law. So you may ask, well, 
Bob, why are we talking about the False Claims Act again? Well, I'll tell you why. On April the 18th of 2023, a case was before the United States Supreme Court trying to determine whether or not the knowledge factor under the reckless disregard or deliberate ignorance has to be subjective based upon subjective facts and circumstances, or is it more limited to only apply to objective factors the individual or entity had at the time they submitted the claim to the government? So the case before the Supreme Court actually arose out of the Seventh Circuit. And for those of you who are not lawyers, I'm probably going to give some references to uh, to case law here, but I'll I'll make sure I explain what is happening in an understandable way. But it arose out of two cases. Uh, These are both QUITAM cases. So again, under the False Claims Act, these are individuals who have brought actions against an individual on behalf of the government. And so it was Schutte versus Super Value, Inc., as well as Proctor versus Safeway, Inc. And both of these cases dealt with the usual and customary charges for prescription drugs. So these are obviously grocery chains, and these grocery chains had pharmacies within the grocery chain. But before I actually get into the facts of those cases, the issue here is whether or not the False Claims Act applies Or are the rules and regulations just so ambiguous that it was a mistake on behalf of the individual that filed the claim with the government? Or is it simply a breach of contract? And so it's a greater threshold in order to say the False Claims Act is implicated, and obviously obviously with those huge fines and penalties, but the knowledge factor has to apply. And so that's what the, the Supreme Court is struggling with. So let's get into the facts of both of these cases. So the first one is SuperValue. And SuperValue had this price matching program. So if a patient came in or a customer came in and wanted to have a prescription filled and the price that a competitor was charging was less than what SuperValue was charging, SuperValue was matching that price. Now, That's perfectly acceptable, but what happened here is under the usual and customary charges. So when an entity that participates in Medicare and Medicaid, uh, they have to file with the government what their usual and customary charges are, and that sets up the reimbursement from Medicare and Medicaid for the future. And so if you misrepresent your your usual and customary charges and, and leave out the lower charges, that increases the usual and customary charges. So what SuperValue did is they did not include any of the price matching prices that they were charging customers. So basically they were, when they reported the usual and customary charges, they were actually listing their retail cash prices and not the lower price matched price that they charged to the customers. So the Quitam Relator alleged that that inflated the usual and customary charge. And basically the same facts exist for the Safeway case, except they had three different programs. So one was a price matching program similar to SuperValue. And in there, they did not report those values under their usual and customary charges. Um, the second one is this, uh, they had a, well, I'm going to put in air quotes, a $4 generic program. And so for certain generic prescription drugs, they were actually charging the customers only $4 for those drugs. But in this case, uh, Safeway did 
report the $4 as part of their usual and customary charges. Then they also had another program, which is sort of the same a matching program. So uh, in certain of the Safeways markets, they were offering a matching program, basically going to the $4 generic program to match a competitor's generic price. And that price was not automatically provided to customers. And because it was not automatically provided to all customers, then Safeway made the determination that they would not report any of those matching $4 generic charges to patients on their usual and customary charges report. And the usual and customary charges report, uh, not only does that go into Medicare and Medicaid, but also the usual and customary charges are reported to pharmacy benefit managers that manage their pharmacy program. But again, they report the usual and customary charges in order to set and establish the charges prospectively when they update what the reimbursement is going to be in the future. And so by not reporting the usual and customary charges at the lower amount, it it could inflate the usual and customary charge uh, that would be established for reimbursement prospectively because of the underreporting of some of the prices that they were charging to patients. So the Seventh Circuit uh, basically said that there needed to be an objective factor applied with respect to knowledge under the False Claims Act when interpreting reckless disregard or deliberate ignorance. And basically, they were relying on another Supreme Court case. In this case, is the case of Safeco Insurance Company of America versus Burr. In the Safeco case, uh, the Supreme Court said that a defendant or individual or entity that is submitting claims to the government uh, will not willfully or recklessly violate the, the False Claims Act if the entity's position is supported by an objective, reasonable, yet could be erroneous uh, interpretation of law, and there was no agency guidance to warn the entity that their interpretation was incorrect. So basically, they were saying that the individual that was submitting the claim needed to have some objective standard to know that their, their position was wrong. And in the super value case, uh, the real, there is an interesting quote. And uh, again, they're, they're supporting the fact that there needed to be some objective standards. And so the majority of the Seventh Circuit said that the individual or entity submitting the claim to the government, and this is the quote, might suspect, believe, or intend to file a false claim, but it cannot, and I'll emphasize this, cannot know that its claim is false if the requirements for that claim are unknown. So under that view, the defendant's subjective intent, and again, going back that they may have intended to file a false claim, is irrelevant with respect to the interpretation. So there had to be some objective knowledge that the law was being violated or that the the law was unclear. So in effect, the defense goes like this. If the government brings a case against an entity or a quitam case is filed, then the defendant can say, well, the regulations were murky. We weren't sure of 
you know, the exact interpretation of the billing rules. And we all know the billing rules for healthcare are very complex and confusing, and they vary by payer to payer. You know, Medicare uh, has a standard, Medicaid has a standard, third-party payers has a standard, and if you have cash-paying patients, there's a separate standard for all of that. So the defendant can actually say, well, the regulations were murky, and because they were murky, we decided to go ahead and file the claim. And the, the murkiness, the unclear nature of the billing rules would be the defense. If that standard is applied, um, then a defendant can rely on the complexity of the regulations. And based upon the complexity of the regulations, they would say, well, there was really no objective uh, basis for us to know than when we were filing, and therefore, then we can support the claim and just allege that you know the government did not make it clear. So since they, they did not make it clear, uh, we are not committing a false claim. Now, that still can go back to a repayment is necessary, but it would not implicate the False Claims Act. So again, I, I want to make, make clear that what I'm trying to interpret here is the False Claims Act interpretation because of the fines and penalties uh, versus a simple repayment. Now, in contrast, the Quitam relators as well as the government are taking a position that the subjectivity or the subjective nature of the facts and circumstances can and should be applied when determining whether or not the False Claims Act is implicated. So their view, again, based upon subjectivity, that the False Claims Act is met when the person or entity filing the claim subjectively believes that the claim is false recognizes that there is a substantial risk that the claim is false and really deliberately avoids trying to obtain clarity uh, regarding the, uh, the exact nature of the, uh, of the claim being filed or knows or should know that the claim is, I'm going to use the word probably false, but acts with reckless disregard for that danger. So again, focusing on the reckless disregard and deliberate ignorance knowledge qualifiers under the False Claims Act, the government's and Quitam Barr's position is that if you subjectively believe that it's false or you have you know it, there's a substantial risk in filing the claim that you're filing a false claim or you know or should have known that the claim is probably false or you you know do not exert you know sufficient resources in order to obtain clarity on the filing of the claim then the false claims act is implicated so the government in the quitam bar believes that a person or entity submitting a claim cannot escape liability under the false claims act by identifying i'm going to put in quotes from the case by identifying an objectively reasonable but wrong exculpatory interpretation of the governing requirements after the fact, even though the entity filing the claim was unaware of that interpretation at the time that it acted. So by applying the objective uh, factors, that would be a fact-specific inquiry of what did the defendant know or actually know and actually intend at the time that they filed the claim, not what was available out there regarding the interpretation of the claim. So on the subjective factor, uh, you would say that they should have known or they should have exerted reasonable diligence in order to understand the appropriate rules and regulations. 
although, you know, and th- this is Bob speak, uh, even though a lot of times these rules and regulations are murky. I remember when I was in-house, uh, we had a billing issue that we were investigating, and we got an opinion from one auditing firm, and we disagreed with that position, so we got uh, we sought out another reputable auditing firm. We did not tell the second auditing firm about the position of the first auditing firm. They came out with a contrary position. So now then you sit in a position and say, well, you know, we, we don't want to be forum shopping. Then we had to hire a third auditing firm. And that tells you a little bit about the murkiness of the rules and regulations from a billing perspective. So the bottom line is that if the knowledge is to be the objective knowledge, and lawyers call this the scienter. If the knowledge is objective, then that is going to limit the ability of the Quitam Bar and the government to successfully bring cases if defendants can talk about the murkiness of the regulations and they did not have the um, the actual knowledge of the appropriateness of the bill at the time that they submitted the bill. So again, the subjective Subjective factors would be the expansion of the application of the False Claims Act, and the objective interpretation would be a narrowing of the False Claims Act. So again, this case was argued before the United States Supreme Court on April 18th of 2023. As of the recording of this episode, the opinion has not been released. So we have to wait and see which factor that the which side the, the Supreme Court is going to take, and then ultimately it may have to go back to the Congress uh, in order to provide a, an interpretation if Congress believes that the Supreme Court's interpretation is contrary to the intent of the False Claims Act. So here's my practical legal advice. And again, I don't represent anybody who's listening here unless you are a client, um, but I would proceed from now until the Supreme Court issues its ruling under the subjective interpretation, the broader interpretation under the False Claims Act. And then we'll have to wait and see uh, whether or not the objective factors actually is supported by the United States Supreme Court. So again, I would I would operate as if the subjective interpretation of the knowledge qualifier applies versus objective. So now it's time for the three Captain Integrity punch points for this episode. Captain Integrity punch point number one, I'll probably say this every time I talk about the False Claims Act, the fines and penalties, if the False Claims Act applies, are huge. So it's treble damages uh, as well as, uh, for 2023, up to $27,000 per claim submitted. Captain Integrity punch point number two, murky uh, regulations or ambiguous regulations could be a defense under the False Claims Act if the objective standard is applied by the United States Supreme Court. And Captain Integrity Punch Point number three, I would continue to operate as if the subjective factors uh, would apply. Uh, so, you know, the broader, more expansive definition. And that really causes us to, uh, if there is ambiguity, to try to get clarity on that ambiguity before claims are filed, if possible. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. 
You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at CaptainIntegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.